Luke chapter 24. And we're going to be again reading in verse 17, to tw- and then we'll go to 27, and then skip ahead to verse 44. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these three days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was to be the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen, even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer all these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Verse 44, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Let's pray. Father, we turn to your word now. This is your word. These are the very words of Christ. So I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help us to see the glory of Christ this morning. To understand what you have said. Open our eyes, God, that we may see wonderful things in what you've written for us. And I pray that this morning we would catch a vision of glory that will be undimmed as we leave here. I ask this for your glory, Lord Jesus, and in your name. Amen. You can be seated. Seventeen years ago, the very first Lord of the Rings movie came to theaters. One of the significant effects of that movie when it was released was to cause a whole generation of young people to become interested in some books that had been written by an old guy years before. The Lord of the Rings trilogy written by J.R.R. Tolkien was, became suddenly extremely popular. I was one of those young people. I had never read the books. I didn't think I'd find them interesting. I wasn't really a fantasy guy and... But after seeing the posters and the trailer and all the promo hype for the movie, I thought, I need to get in on this. So I headed down to the Moose Jaw Public Library, and I went in to check out my copy of The Fellowship of the Ring, and they were all gone. 
because I was not the only person swept up in the hype. But the second and the third books in the trilogy were sitting there just staring at me. And I was impatient. And so I took them out and took them home and I started reading a trilogy at book two. I don't recommend starting and reading a trilogy a third of the way in. Even though the book began with a short synopsis, even though it gave a, a, a broad strokes kind of synopsis of, of what had happened in the first book, I had no idea what was going on. I didn't know who these people were, what they were doing. It was very confusing, and I missed out on a lot. So see, because I didn't know what had happened first, and, and I didn't know where we were in the story, I didn't understand what was going on. But then came the wonderful day. The library called me and said, a copy of the Fellowship of the Ring that you put on, on reserve, it's in. You can come and check it out and read it. So I went back, and after reading books two and three, I went back and read book one. And it was just like the lights turned on. I was like, oh, now I get it. Now I understand why all these things happened and all that strange, weird stuff they were saying and all the decisions they were making. It all made sense. But then, then I went further, because some of you will know this, that, that the, the, the three Lord of the Rings books are part of a much bigger world that the author, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote. And there's, there's a huge backstory. And so I, I went deep into that backstory. I read books like The Silmarillion and Unfinished Tales. I read The Letters of J.R.R. Tolkien, which is a whole series of published letters he wrote that explain this world more. I even started to try to learn the Elvish languages that he invented. Now, before you judge me for all this rampant nerdiness, I was only 17, and believe me, back in those days, being a Lord of the Rings expert made you very popular with the ladies. And that sounds like a joke, and it, it maybe is half, but the truth is that knowing all this stuff and kind of having read all these extra books, my friends would come and, and ask me questions to try to help them better understand the movies, right? Because the movies have a backstory and there's stuff in the movies that don't really make sense without the backstory. And so I could help them understand who certain characters were. I could help them understand, for example, that, that Gandalf is just a, an angel in human form. He's not actually a real wizard and sort of like the way we see in like Harry Potter and stuff like that. It's totally different. I could help them understand who the elves were and why they were going on these boats and what Numenor meant and all this kind of stuff. That was just a little throw out to those of you who understand what I'm talking about. But knowing the big story, I was able to help my friends make sense of the smaller story and how it all fit together. But the truth is, in the end, none of that really matters. It's just fantasy. It's just something someone made up. Whether or not you ever read or enjoy or understand The Lord of the Rings doesn't really make a difference in the grand scheme of your life. But what if there's another story that does matter? What if there's another story that is not made up, but is actually real? What if there's another story that's been being told from the beginning of time until now? What if you and I are actually a part of that story, that we're in the telling of it right now? What if all of our lives and all of our stories are actually little parts of the biggest story ever told. If that were true, then knowing that story, knowing 
what had happened in that story up until now, knowing where we are in it, would not just be interesting, but would be absolutely crucial to understanding what we're supposed to do right now and what we're supposed to do next. I'm using the words what if, right? When I say what if, what if, but I hope you are catching my drift that this is all true. There is a story, a true story that God has been telling from the dawn of time up until now. It's a story that God had been planning in all of eternity past. It's a story that he began to write when he first said, let there be light. It's the story that God has been telling as he's been sovereignly overseeing all of human history and weaving his plan of redemption through all of it. It's the story that we're a part of. And it's a story that's written down and unfolded for us in the Bible. We're starting a new series today called You Are Here, Finding Our Place in the Biggest Story Ever Told. And what I want to do for this, us this morning is introduce us to what this series is about and what it means and where we're going in these next months together. By the way, so, short side note, I didn't mention it when I introduced small groups before, but what we're going to be doing in our small groups this year is, is working through study guides that come out of these messages and help us dig into this sermon series a little bit more. So that's, that's what our material is in our small groups this year is going back and, and, and uh, re-digging into and applying to our lives the things we're going to be learning in this series. Before I'd ever opened the Lord of the Rings, I had read the Bible. I grew up in a home where my mom was diligent to read the Bible to us. When I was still young, uh, I think I was six or seven, my mom felt burdened to, to read the whole scriptures to us. And so she would sit me and my two sisters down and, and read the Bible to us. And it took us a few years, but we read through the entire Bible cover to cover. So by the time I was 11 or 12, I had been given the incredible gift of having had every single word of scripture read to me. And along the way, my mom would explain certain things to us. She'd help us try to understand it as best as she could. And so I had a rough idea of the fact that the different elements in the Bible were related to each other somehow. I understood that there's this progression from creation to the fall of man into sin to the redemption in Christ Jesus and finally one day the restoration and that, that God's promise when he makes all things new and dwells with us again. I, I had a rough idea of all of that. I understood, I guess you could say, in the, that, that the Bible was one unit in, in, in the broadest possible way, but that was about it. Past that point, I didn't know how the Bible all fit together. I'd read the whole thing. I had it read to me. I didn't know how all the different stories in the Bible, for example, David and Goliath, Jonah and the whale, Jesus healing lepers, how they were all connected into one consistently unfolding story. I didn't, I didn't understand that. And I also didn't understand how that one story was connected to my story, our story. I didn't understand that the story in the scriptures is still ongoing, even though the Bible is a completed unit, that, that the, the tale that it is telling is something that we are still a part of and that we're waiting its, its completion. And what I found is I grew up and I visited many churches, started speaking in different churches and camps and Christian settings. I found that I wasn't alone in this lack of understanding. And, and over the years, I've met many wonderful people of God who have loved Jesus and spent their whole lives serving him and have been reading the Bible their whole lives and don't understand how it all fits together into one story. And it's not because I'm smart 
that God did this for me, that, that I was able to understand these things. God brought teachers into my life. I, I didn't come up with this stuff myself. He, he brought preachers and authors who, with sermons and books, opened my eyes to, to help me start to understand the unity of scripture, that, that the Bible fits together into one story, that that story is still going on today and that, that we're a part of that story. And I can tell you that this journey of learning how this all fits together has been one of the most exciting things in my life. It's, it's like for years I had in my understanding of, of the truth of God, I, I, what I saw was a bunch of dots, like a constellation of stars. And over the years, as God has taught me things through these other people, it's like those dots have started to be connected to each other. And now all of a sudden, and, and more and more increasingly, it's revealing an image, a beautiful picture that is taking my breath away more and more. And I want you to know that the best part of this journey, the best part of this journey of discovery, of understanding how the Bible tells one story, has not been just knowing stuff. It's not been new information. It's not been the, the, just being able to know better than I did before. The thrill of this journey has been getting to know Jesus better and to have my love for Jesus Christ grow in ways that I couldn't have imagined before because this biggest story ever told is a story that can be summed up in one word, Jesus. This story is about Jesus. And so to know the story better is to know Jesus better. To love the story more is to love Jesus more. That point shouldn't be surprising to us. God told us in his word that everything is connected together and everything is about Jesus. I hope you know that. I hope you know from Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about that, the fact that God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan, listen to this, this is Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, a plan for the fullness of time. So here's God's plan for the fullness of time. Here's God's plan for everything from one end of time to the other is to unite all things in him, Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. That's God's plan, to bring everything together from one end of time to the other, from the heights of heaven to the depths of here on earth, and to bring them all together, united under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the plan. Colossians 1 says this, all things were created through him and for him. We read this this morning. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And then it says this, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's God's plan. That's God's heart. That's God's will, that in everything, Jesus Christ be preeminent. This greatest story ever told is about Jesus, and it always has been. The Bible I grew up reading, all those stories I read, David and Goliath and Jonah and the whale, it was all about someone, Jesus Christ. So just a few moments ago, we read from Luke chapter 24, which picks up on the story, the day that Jesus rose from the dead. And, and the story, which we sort of jumped in halfway through, is that Jesus himself is walking along with two of his disciples and he's hiding his identity. I don't know how he did that. But he was making it so they didn't understand who he was. And they're telling him about his death. God has such a sense of irony, right? People telling Jesus about the fact that he died. And their disappointment in that because they hoped that he was the one that, that God had promised. 
And then they mentioned that some of them had gone to the grave that morning and found it empty. And there were some angels who said he was alive, but they didn't see Jesus. And the sense you get from these two guys is that they don't believe it. But we don't know it's two guys, actually. It could have, could have been a man and a woman or two women. But the, 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 the fact even that they're leaving Jerusalem, right? They're not hunting around Jerusalem trying to find Jesus. The fact that they're leaving Jerusalem and the way they're talking about these things suggests that they don't believe it. They don't believe what the women said. They don't believe that Jesus is alive. And so Jesus says, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe. It's in verse 25. But notice here, what does Jesus rebuke them for being slow of heart to believe? He doesn't say, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe your friends. Come on, do you think they try to pull your leg? He doesn't say, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe those angels at the tomb. He doesn't say to them, come on, the tomb is empty. The evidence speaks for itself. Jesus didn't say anything like that. He didn't rebuke them for not believing the angels, the women, or the empty tomb. What did he rebuke them for not believing? The scriptures, all that the prophets had spoken. That's talking about the Jewish scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. He's saying, you should have believed this because of your Bible. And then beginning with, it says the writings of Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. And then going all the way up to Malachi, the, right, the writings of the prophets. He explained to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning who himself so just think about that. When you think, if I was to ask you, what part of the Bible talks about Jesus? What would, what would you think? Where would you turn to? The Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark. Right? That's the part of the Bible that talks about Jesus. And the, the epistles talk about Jesus because we're supposed to live like him. And revel This talks about Jesus. And it says here that he showed them everything concerning himself from Genesis to Malachi. Later on that day. Oh, and by the way, Jesus explains this in a way that is saying to them, you should have got this already. You should know this. Like he said in John 6 to the Pharisees, you know, you, you study the scriptures. You think in them you'll find eternal life. And it is they that testify about me. Later on that day in Luke 24, Jesus appeared to his 11 apostles. And then he said to them in verse 44, words that we've read already. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Again, that's a reference to the scriptures, the, old, the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, that that all must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, verse 45, and said, thus it is written, in those scriptures. Thus it is written in Genesis and Leviticus and the book of Jonah and 2 Chronicles and Ezekiel and Isaiah and Malachi. Thus it is written in those scriptures that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Do you know that? Do you know that the book of Numbers talks about Jesus and is about him? Do you know that we should be able to point to anywhere in the Old Testament in the places where we find it and from the Old Testament show that Jesus is the Messiah, that he would suffer, that he would rise after third day, that on the third day, and that Jerusalem was not the end of his mission, 
which is what his disciples thought. They thought he came here and that's the end. No, Jerusalem was the beginning of his mission of, of preaching this news of what he accomplished to all the nations. In my experience, many Christians don't understand how that works. I was one of them for years. And so that's what this series is about. That's one of the goals of this series, that by the end of our time together, that you would be able to confidently explain to somebody else how all the scriptures testify to Christ. So let's start to take a swing at that this morning. Let's start to ask this morning, how do the Old Testament scriptures, the Jewish scriptures from Genesis to Malachi, how do they fit together and tell one story that comes together in Jesus? How do we do that? How do we tell the story of Jesus from the Jewish scriptures? Well, the truth is that we could start almost anywhere. If you think of the scriptures as a tapestry, we could pick any thread and start, start to tug at that thread and follow it and it will lead us to Christ. We can take any single idea from, from or many of the ideas, at least I should say, from, from the Jewish scriptures, an idea like kingdom or temple or blood sacrifice, and we should be able to trace it out and end up at the cross and the empty grave. So we could really start anywhere. And follow the line to Christ. But if we actually look at how the Bible itself is written, if we actually look at how the Bible itself as a story, as a, as a work of literature unfolds, what we'll find is that the Bible, just like any other good story, doesn't have threads just lying everywhere. Those threads form a pattern. What I'm saying here is that the Bible has a central storyline. It has a plot, a main plot that builds and develops and reaches its peak in Christ. It's not just an anthology, just a collection of a bunch of different stories. It has a storyline that comes together in Christ. And if we were to try and boil down that storyline and say, what is that main storyline in the Bible? What is the main plot structure in the Bible? If we were to answer that question, we would need to use the word covenants. The covenants. If you're not familiar with the word covenant, a covenant is a special relationship between two parties that's held together by promises and commitments. So the example of a covenant that most of us are familiar with is marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And if you read through the Bible, you can't help but notice that God has a pattern of making covenants with people. He makes a covenant with Noah. There's evidence before then of a covenant with Adam in all of creation. God makes a covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant with all of Israel through Moses. And then finally, God makes a covenant with King David. But what we need to understand, and this is one of, the, one of the big ideas in this series that I'm going to try to explain for us this morning, is that these covenants are not just one part of the story. These covenants are not just threads in the tapestry. When we step back and look at the tapestry as a whole, these covenants 
are the pattern that we will see. As some recent authors have said, these, the covenants form the backbone of the storyline of the Bible. Let me try to explain that to you very simply. Reader's Digest in the past has tried to make a Reader's Digest version of the Bible, which is just mind-boggling. But if we could condense the Bible down to a short novel, you know the kind of novels you read in grade six where they just had you know, five or six chapters and they were all really short? If we could condense the Bible down to a short novel, the chapter headings, each chapter, would be one of the covenants. That's how the storyline moves forward. So let me try to show us again how this works. The story of the Bible begins with God, who had always existed, and he created the world, and he made humans in his image to rule this world under him in relationship with him. But Satan seduced them to rebel against God. And so those first humans fell into sin. And they dragged the whole creation down with them. And in response, God promised a redeemer. He promised that there would be a son born to a woman who would crush the head of that seducing serpent. But the snake-crushing son was not born right away. The story doesn't jump right from fall to redemption in Jesus. Instead, God let things get worse. Sin got out of control, and God punished the whole world with a flood, and he only saved one man and his family. God started over with Noah. Noah was like a second Adam. He became the father of the new humanity, and God promised that to Noah that he'd never destroy the world with a flood again. In other words, God would use grace and not just judgment to deal with sin going forward. And then God began to fulfill those promises when he called a man named Abram and made a covenant with him. And God covenanted with Abraham that he would be the father to many nations and that from him would come an offspring who would bring blessing to the whole world. And then God took another step in fulfilling these promises when he called one of those nations that came from Abraham, the nation of Israel, and he led them out of Egypt and he brought them to Mount Sinai. And there God entered into covenant with Israel and told them that they were going to be his kingdom of priests to the whole world. They were the ones that were going to bring blessing to the nations, fulfill God's promises to Abraham as they lived in covenant with God. But they failed, didn't they? They disobeyed God. And in the years following that, we see that Israel was anything but a blessing to the nations. And so it was that God chose a young boy from the tribe of Judah and made him king over his people Israel and made a covenant promise to him that he would have a son always reigning on the throne. And through the prophets, God promised again and again that this son of David that had been promised would be the one who would finally bring blessing to the nations and unite the whole world in obedience to God. That all of God's promises had been narrowing down. Do you see that? From the whole world to Abraham, to Israel, and finally one person who would be the channel through whom all those other covenants and promises would be finally fulfilled. And so it was after centuries of exile and wandering, when all hope seemed lost and when the fullness of time, though, had come, God sent his own son, Jesus, born 
of a woman. And in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Do you see? Jesus fulfills every covenant promise that God made. Jesus is the second Adam, the father of this new humanity. Jesus is the the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the snake. Jesus is, he's the offspring of Abraham. He's the one that God promised to Abraham, who's going to bring blessing to the whole world. Jesus is the real temple and the real sacrifice and the real high priest of a new and a better covenant than he made through Moses. Jesus paid for all of our sins on the cross and in a way that the the sacrifices of, of the old covenant could only point to. And Jesus is the son of David. He's the promised king who right now is reigning and will reign forever, just like God promised. And one day is going to sit on a throne on this very planet and the kingdoms of this world will finally be the kingdoms of our God. That's the story. And that's the story that we should have in our mind as we turn from what we call the Old Testament and open up to what we call the New Testament and look at the very first verse in the very first book of the New Testament. Have you ever done that? Matthew chapter one, verse one, it says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I read that verse many times in my life. And you know what I thought it meant? Oh, Jesus was a Jew. I hope you understand now. With that story in your thinking, it is saying so much more than that. The entire story of the Bible is summed up in that one verse, Matthew 1 verse 1. It is telling us that Jesus Christ is the son of David. He's the one that God promised to David who will always sit on the throne. He's the Messiah that's going to bring the nations together in worship under God the forever and ever king. Matthew 1.1, when it calls Jesus the son of David, is announcing the king of the world is here. And it says that Jesus is the son of Abraham. God promised Abraham an offspring who would bring blessing to the whole world. And Jesus is that promised offspring. This is the story. And the story isn't finished yet. Because Jesus reigns. The son of David is on his throne. But that reign is contested. The nations are still not subjected to him. And Jesus has promised that he's going to come back. And he's going to crush opposition. And he's going to make all things new. And he's going to dwell with us like he promised. He's going to bring us back to Eden, but better than Eden. And we are going to rule under him once again. Just like he meant for Adam and Eve. But until then, he's called us together as his people, the church, and he's given us a mission to fulfill before any of that happens. So we have work to do. And that's where we are in the biggest story ever told. And so over these next eight months, we're going to go back and we're going to tell this story one piece at a time. If your head is exploding right now, you don't, it's okay. You don't have to remember everything here. So we've got eight months to go back, week at a time, and walk through this story and understand it and understand our place in it. So next week, we're going to start all the way back at the beginning. Next week, we're going to begin with the first half of Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, 
God. And we're going to stop there. And we're just going to ask, who is God? What was God doing for all of eternity before any of this ever started? And why did he start all of this? What was his, did God have a, have a need that needed to be met? Or why did God choose to write this story? Why did he do this? And who is he? And then the week after that, we're going to consider creation and God's special purpose in making Adam and Eve. And then we're going to talk about the fall into sin and what that meant for Adam and Eve and and what that meant for God's plans for the whole universe. And then we're going to spend a week walking through each of those covenants that I mentioned before, Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. And we're going to see how each of those covenants carried God's kingdom forward and pointed forward to the promised one. And then right around the beginning of November, we get to my favorite part of the series, which is Jesus. After we talk about the exile, we're going to get to Jesus. And there we're going to spend seven weeks seeing how Jesus fulfills each of the promises of God. And we're going to go back and we're going to talk about how Jesus is the second Adam and Jesus is the son of Abraham and Jesus is the son of David and what that means And I can't wait for those seven weeks. And then in the third part of the series, we're going to spend almost four months from January to April, April asking, where does this leave us? Where are we in the story? And what does that mean for us today? If Jesus has come and fulfilled all these promises, if, if Jesus has brought us into the covenant, the new covenant into the kingdom of God, then what does that mean for how we read the Bible? What does that mean for how we understand what God expects of us today? What does it look like for us to live under the lordship of King Jesus while we wait for his return? What should we do next? And so in those weeks, we're going to try to answer those questions. And we're going to consider numbers of passages from the New Testament that speak about 12 different aspects of the Christian life. From work and money, to marriage, and singleness, and family, to prayer, and spiritual warfare, and the law, and mission, and we're going to try to better understand how this big story of the Bible applies to you and me right here today. What should we do next? And then we're going to look ahead to all that Jesus has promised in the future, the new heavens and the new earth where he dwells with us again, and how that promise brings everything into focus because everything that we do today matters because of what's coming for us in the future. And then our series is going to wrap up April 21st, Resurrection Sunday, as we're going to celebrate and worship the risen King. So again, I hope that you don't feel like you've had too big of a drink from a fire hose this morning. We've got a lot of time to go back and, and, and eat this meal one bite at a time and let it really sink in. It's another great reason to join a small group this year. It'll allow us to chew and digest again much of what we're learning. The kids in, in Sunday school are going to be looking at adapted versions of this material as well. And so this is a journey we're going to go on as a church, and I can't wait. But I hope that even if everything I've shared this morning is reviewed to you, even if you've known these things, if, if, if God has helped you to understand them and you've, you've seen these things, I hope that even hearing these things again this morning, 
you've already begun to experience the effect on your own soul that comes from being reminded of this big story. So often, we're tempted, especially here in North America, to make Christianity all about us. We know that Jesus is our personal savior, but we stop there. We know our stories really well and how Jesus has redeemed our lives and we know our testimonies really well, but we stop there. And it's all too easy for us to end up with a version of Christianity that is small and personal-sized and it's all about us. And we all need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus Yes, is our personal savior. But what makes that wonderful is that he's so much more than that. That our personal savior is also the son of David and the high priest of the new covenant and the lamb of God and the second Adam who's in the process of crushing Satan's head under his feet. And he invites us to participate in that work with him, right? That's what Romans 16, 19 is about. You grew up singing that song at camp and youth group and never had a clue what it was saying about. The God of peace is going to crush Satan in fulfillment of that ancient promise to Eve underneath the feet of his body, the church, as we join in his work in the world. And that's where we're at in the story And so I think we need to be reminded of the fact that our own stories are just one part of a bigger story, a story that stretches from Eden to the new Jerusalem, from heaven to hell. And this story is not about us. It's about Jesus Christ. We are not the main character in this story. We are supporting cast, but man, do we ever have a part to play. And so I hope you found even this morning that this this perspective, it changes things. I hope this changes the way you go to work tomorrow. I hope it affects the way students as you walk through the front doors of your school tomorrow. I hope this changes the way that you look at your family, the way you look at your money, the way you look at time, the way that you come to the congregational meeting tonight, the attitudes you have as you come here at 5.30 like you're all going to, right? This perspective, this reminder of this big story, it makes sin look less appealing than it did before. It stops you in your tracks when you want to complain about something. And it helps us to go on when we're suffering. Just like Paul wrote to Timothy when Timothy was getting weary in the ministry and Paul was in jail and things were hard. And Paul said to him in 2 Timothy 2, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Do you hear that? Paul says to Timothy, remember the biggest story ever told. And he goes on to remind him that we're in that story, Timothy. Keep going. So as you head into your week, do you need to keep going? Is there, is there discouragement and weariness in your heart? Is there temptations that just seem so close? Remember Jesus Christ, the offspring of David. Remember the story that you're a part of. Remember what's in store. And as you remember, ask, ask the son of David, the son of David, your savior, to give you strength patience and wisdom and grace. Ask him to help you live out your own part of the story in a way that brings glory to him, the main character of it all. As I pray, I'm going to invite the team up. We're going to sing a song of worship to this Christ. Let's pray together right now. Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what it tells us. Thank you for the 
the reality that it invites us into. Thank you, God, that the biggest story ever told is not fantasy, but is truth. And Lord Jesus, would you help us to see you? Would you help us to fix our eyes on you, that in all things you might be preeminent, that you would be the main character in our hearts as we go into this new week? Would you help us, Jesus, to put into practice even what we've learned already this morning? And would you bless us and keep us as we go on this journey together as a church this year? I ask this in Jesus' name.